I love that song. Uh, <clears throat> part, of the, part of the reason I picked that song this morning, do you notice that it said, Heaven came down? We're going to look at the Tower of Babel this morning. And of course, many of you know that what mankind was seeking to do was to reach heaven, was to get up and be like God. And so one of the things that we're going to see this morning, hopefully, as we look at the account and the story of the Tower of Babel, is that in many ways, what God did there to address that sin of mankind was to scatter and is a means of grace and mercy. And we'll get to that. That'll be the second part of what we're going to talk about this morning. So go ahead and open up to um, chapter 11 of Genesis. This is going to be our final message in this series, and I believe next week you're going to begin with Colossians. So that'll be nice. That'll be interesting. We'll kind of going back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament. So we're going to continue this morning looking at how we might see the gospel in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we're going to look at the Tower of Babel here this morning. And as you have heard us say here on some Sunday mornings with regards to the gospel in Genesis, there are some accounts and some events that are really, really clear images of the gospel. Last week, when Michael shared about the Noahic Covenant and the rainbow, we saw a really, really clear picture of what Jesus came to do on our behalf. Um, Probably in uh, Genesis 3.15, we saw another pretty clear example of the gospel in Genesis. We're going to see aspects of the gospel here. It won't be quite as clear, but I think we can be able to draw and take away this morning um, how the gospel addresses even some of the sin that we'll see at Babel. And our time this morning is basically going to be broken down into two halves, two sections. The first section that I want to look at is just going to be verses 1 through 4 of chapter 11. And that's going to be about how the Tower of Babel was a rebellion against God. That's essentially what Moses and God are going to communicate to us there in the first four verses, is that the Tower of Babel was ultimately just a rebellion against God. And we're going to have three points under that. And then our second half this morning is going to be the confusion at Babel was an act of grace and mercy by God. And that will be verses 5 through 9. The confusion and the scattering at Babel was an act of grace and mercy by God. So I'm going to go ahead and read these first nine verses of chapter 11. You can follow along with me. It says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. And watch this. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Look at verse 4b for a second with me. This is going to be sort of the, the crux and the hinge point of our time this morning. It says, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. That right there basically just tells us everything we need to know, doesn't it? Now think about that. Think about what we learned last week. That God had started fresh with Noah and his family. God had made a new covenant with mankind. God said, I promise to never destroy the earth again in this way. Be fruitful and multiply. It was a fresh start, wasn't it? And just a chapter or two later, we find that mankind has reverted back to the same old sins and the same propensities and uh, trends of rejecting and rebelling against God again. And Michael shared with us last week that God said, because man is only evil in his heart. Even though he had started fresh with Noah, God understood and God knew that one of the reasons a covenant was needed with mankind was because of who God was and because he knew mankind was still not going to get it. We heard an illustration last week that parents, sometimes when we're trying to instill something in our children over and over and over again, we have to sometimes resolve to the fact that they may just not get it. And we have to be comfortable with that sometimes. doesn't mean that we're going to like it. We either have to find a new mechanism or means for communicating, or we just have to resolve to be okay with it in our spirit. God knew that mankind was still going to sin. But he made a covenant because of who he is. A covenant based on his goodness and his promise to mankind. And so we see here in chapter 11 that mankind has reverted to this rebellion. Now, Turn with me just a chapter over in chapter 10. And let's just look at verses 8 through 10. Mankind had a leader. It wasn't the Lord, but mankind had a leader at this time. Chapter 10, verses 8 through 10 says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So we see here that one of the leaders, if not the leader, at Babel was Nimrod, a mighty, mighty warrior. But you know what his name means? Nimrod's name means, we shall rebel. His name literally means, we shall rebel. Isn't that interesting? Now I want to share something with you. We have an extra-biblical account by Josephus. Don't know how true this is exactly, but as you, many of you know, Josephus was a Jewish historian and, and, and writer who would uh, chronicle and he would record a lot of uh, extra-biblical events in his time. And so maybe this was folklore, maybe this was information that had been passed down in Jewish culture, maybe this was inspired, maybe it wasn't, but I want you to think about what he says here. It says, Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man, 
and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now, like I said, I don't know if that's inspired, I don't know if it's necessarily factual, but think about that. Think about how Josephus describes Nimrod. His name means we shall rebel, and Nimrod may have corralled the public and corralled his contemporaries to rebel against God and to build a tower that could be so high it could reach the heavens, make a name for themselves, but at the very least, or maybe at the very most, also protect them from waters if God would ever want to flood the world again. And he would avenge what God had done to his forefathers. That's the kind of attitude that we might be dealing with, possibly. So mankind desires to build a tower and make a name, and I'll say for ourselves. Because it's very easy for us to look at the Old Testament and even passages in the New Testament and go, boy, those people sure were hard-headed, weren't they? They sure took a long time to, to get it. You know, if we were there, we'd probably behave very, very similarly. But you know what Proverbs 18 says? You guys know this. The name of the Lord is what? A high and strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. That's what our mentality should be. Not that we need to create for ourselves, but that God is our provision, our protector, our provider. So the Tower of Babel was a rebellion against God. Um, And the first thing that we see, look in verse 2, And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. It can seem kind of innocent, but the very first thing that we see here is that they rebelled against God by settling in the plain of Shinar. The word settle there literally means they dwelt there. And did you notice in verse 4, I kind of hinted at it when we were reading through it, they said, let us settle here lest, lest we be scattered across the face of the earth. A little bit of a foreshadow, wouldn't you say? You know, whenever mankind says, let's do something lest God accomplish what he wants, it's never going to end well. Never going to end well. We were watching, we were watching Captain Phillips uh, last weekend, maybe. I can't recall. And there's a scene at the beginning of the movie Captain Phillips, where Tom Hanks, as Captain Phillips, is aboarding this big cargo ship for the first time. And he's kind of going through the motions and he's checking things. And one of the things he sees is he sees these pirate gates that were unlatched with really, really chintzy locks that certainly weren't going to hold and weren't going to work. And you see on his face and his mannerisms that as he kind of flips the, the gate up and sees that it's you know, unchecked and this lock's clearly not going to be adequate, it's a bit of a foreshadow in the movie. And Susan even said at the moment, she goes, well, that was kind of a foreshadow, wasn't it? I believe this is kind of a foreshadow. You know, when mankind says... Let us settle here. Let us build a city and a tower so that we won't get scattered and let's build a name for ourselves. Well, guess what? 
you know what's probably going to happen. You know how that's probably going to end. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And the reason I say that this is sort of the, the first act of rebelling against God is because remember what God commanded at creation? Chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and do what? Fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Alright? Turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. I briefly mentioned this and referenced this a moment ago. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. And then look at verse 7. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. I believe that God clearly intended for mankind to multiply, fill the earth, and the implication, I believe, is to occupy the whole earth and spread out. God intends for mankind to rule over the earth, to subdue it. We saw in Genesis 1 how God had created the earth for mankind. That it was once inhabitable, hostile, a wasteland, and God made it habitable for the express purpose of mankind living and occupying it. It was created for man, to sustain man, and to give men and women responsibility over it. You know, the gospel says something very similar to us, doesn't it? The gospel commands us to be fruitful and multiply by going out into the world, into all the nations, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, and discipling followers of Jesus. We are to go into all the earth, sharing the gospel, baptizing, and teaching them what Jesus commanded, teaching them to obey. Mark gives that to us. Matthew gives that to us in the Great Commission. Turn with me. We're going to spend a lot of time in Acts this morning as well, so keep your finger in Genesis, but turn to Acts chapter 1. And when we, when we jump back to Genesis, go ahead and keep your finger in Acts because we're going to need that again later on. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You might remember this from when we went through our teaching series on Acts. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, the immediate, and all Judea, the region, a little bit outside Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now jump over to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 28. 21 and 28. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia into, and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had 
accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time with the disciples. So we see that Jesus had commanded the disciples to go and multiply, fill the earth with believers, teaching them what he had commanded. Now look at this. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 46 and 47. We're going to see something similar, but with a slight difference. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So God becomes the agent of multiplication. God is adding to their numbers day by day as they are faithfully operating in his commands. Look at Acts chapter 8. Verses 1 through 4. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But look at verse 3 here. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And you might also remember in Acts 16, there was persecution that came upon the apostles and the disciples. And through that persecution, God spread the good news. And so what we see here in the Tower of Babel is that God scatters at Babel as a form of judgment. But he scatters in the New Testament as a form of growth. Isn't that interesting? You know, the, the mankind was commanded to go out, multiply, fill the earth in Genesis chapter 11. They were commanded to do that, but they didn't. They stayed all kind of just in a city and congregated. They rebelled against God. You know, in the New Testament, they could have done the same thing, but they were commanded, just like in Genesis, go fill the earth, spread out, and share the good news. I wonder if present day mankind might be guilty of something similar. I'm not picking on the megachurch model. I want to be really, really clear. I'm not picking on the megachurch model, but I am saying that I believe it can be uh, very susceptible to promoting a level of comfort, a level of peace, and a level of maybe satisfaction that doesn't require believers to get out of their element and trust the Lord with their whole hearts. I know that sounds like a strong accusation, but I remember, I remember listening to, I believe it was either Pastor Lafayette Scales or Tony Evans at the end of a Promise Keepers event back in like 2000 at Nationwide Arena. And he gave this analogy that Christians can be a lot like manure, and of course, all these guys in the arena are like, oh, wow, what? And he, he gave this analogy in this illustration, this comparison, where he said, 
you know, when you get us all together and you concentrate us, we just stink to high heaven. I mean, we just smell. But he goes, you spread us out and we become like fertilizer. I said all that to simply say that we see some trends in the contemporary church, which is come in and congregate as a big, huge, gigantic mass of believers because it's very easy to come in and slip in and slip out. It's very easy to surround almost your entire sphere and your entire life with people who think like you and are like-minded. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that if we are not out sharing and fertilizing for the Lord. And the other thing that we see happening in the contemporary church sometimes is that we begin to build up a singular leader at the top. We begin to empower that person at a greater level than maybe what God has called us to. Francis Chan realized that maybe the megachurch model that he was a part of wasn't necessarily what God had intended for him and walked away from it. It's easy to seek comfort and not be uncomfortable, isn't it? It's really desirable. I believe that's part of what happened to Babel. It's going to be really easy for us to all stay together, make a name for ourselves, and not be scattered all over the earth and have to work and have hardships. And so, settling in Shinar was easier than spreading out, more convenient, and more comfortable. But the gospel calls us to get out of our comfort zones. The gospel calls us to seek the kingdom of God first, and not necessarily comfort. So the second point, a second act of rebellion we see here is in verse 3. Look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Well, there might not be anything inherently wrong with ingenuity. It's the motive behind ingenuity that is extremely important. You know what I mean when I say that? At Babel, the advancements were completely selfish and rebellious. And what I mean by that is they were fabricating building materials at will which significantly reduced their reliance upon God. You know, life becomes significantly less about what God provides and more about sustaining ourselves sometimes. Jesus said that it's hard for the wealthy or rich man to come into the kingdom because that person often has been able to sustain himself or herself. That person can often meet his or her own needs and is not in dire straits and dependency upon God because they can be self-sustaining. And it becomes a challenge to recognize that that person still needs a Savior just like the rest of us. And so, you know, when you can make your own bricks, your building materials virtually become unlimited. What do you need God for? You can build this tower and you can create building materials now. Now remember, it's still being used by the resources that God has provided. There's nothing inherently wrong with using the wisdom that God gives us and and, and advancements. But when we do so with ill motives and a wrong heart, and we use those advancements and that technology and that wisdom to rebel against God, that becomes extremely problematic and that's what they were doing watch listen to what Josephus goes on to say possibly 
possibly about the motivations of Nimrod and his contemporaries. It says, Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. And so they built a tower, neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree negligent about the work. And by reason of the multitude of hands employed in it, it grew very high, sooner than anyone could expect. But the thickness of it was so great and it was so strongly built that thereby its great height seemed upon the view to be less than it really was. Now watch this, or listen to this. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar, made of bitumen, or tar, that it might not be liable to admit water. Isn't that interesting that Josephus draws that connection? Like I said, not saying that this is inspired, not saying that there's an actual record of this other than him being an historian and writing this. But think about that. Building bricks that you can fashion together, you can make them innumerable because all you're doing is grabbing materials from the ground. You're not having to go mine and quarry the stone. You can make them smooth and fit together perfectly because you can control the finish and the surface. And instead of using mortar, you can use tar, which was provided by the Lord. He told Noah, cover that boat with pitch and tar because it's going to make it watertight. So something very good that God had designed and provided for mankind is now being used as a means of rebelling and rejecting God. An instrument to reject Him. And it's entirely possible that it may have been with the expressed intent to keep water out. Build it high enough that the water level can't overcome it and build it watertight enough that the water can't infiltrate it. And so we see that even advancements in technology can be used to rebel against God. But the gospel, the gospel reminds us that even on our most advanced day, God is superior, right? Even on our best day, with the greatest wisdom and our greatest invention of mankind, whatever that might be, pick anything. Pick the iPhone. I don't know. God is still far superior. Listen to this list for a second. You guys know these events, but I just hope they'll recall and bring to remembrance the preeminence and the superiority of God himself. The best fishermen were still petrified when the, in the storm until Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, right? The best fishermen caught nothing until Jesus told them to throw their net on the other side of the boat. The curtain of the temple, which was man's pride and joy, super, super thick, right, gets torn from top to bottom. The immovable stone at the temple, I mean at the uh, tomb, was effortlessly rolled away by God himself. The disciples in the upper room closed the door, locked it for protection, and Jesus comes walking through the walls. Sitting there like, where did he come from? Philip was supernaturally transported miles away after baptizing the Ethiopian. They come up out of the water, and Philip is transported to another city. That's God. An angel of the Lord opened the prison gates for John and Peter when they were told, don't go around speaking about this resurrection anymore. An angel comes and goes, here you go. Prison gates open. Go back out there and keep preaching. Paul and Silas, about midnight, are singing hymns 
and the earthquake happens, the shackles and the chains come off, and they walk out freely. That's God, right? You know, the inventions and the technology of mankind is completely superseded and trumped by God himself. And so that's what we see in the gospel. Technology is good. Technology and wisdom come from God. But what are the motives of our hearts as we employ, I'll say, greater ingenuity? What are we using it for? You know, we have apps now that permit us to give to to churches and ministries. It's a great thing. But what happens when the act of writing that check or the act of taking the resource and placing it in the bag, placing it in the plate, is circumvented? Is there a disconnect that begins to happen? I'm not picking on the technology. I'm not saying that it's inherently wrong. But over time, does that create a disconnect from the activity? What about Bible apps? Technology is great. We've got all of Scripture at our fingertips, right? So cool. But is it creating a biblical illiteracy? Can people no longer navigate in a physical Bible to where they need to go because it has always been this? Is the technology creating lesser Christians in the end? AI sermons. Amy, you and I had a conversation at Rick and Janine's house about artificial intelligence-generated sermons. They're not too bad. You plug in what you'd like to talk about, and I think they generally kind of hit the point. But now you have church leaders who are no longer doing the hard work for themselves, who are no longer getting into the Word of God, and just simply regurgitating and reading something else. Over time, that is going to create a huge problem of maturity or immaturity in the church. Technology that is a good thing, but ends up causing rejection and rebellion and circumventing God himself. You know, I don't know if you guys have heard, but mankind, scientists, now believe that they can create humans. For a while, we were on the verge of cloning. By the way, I was out in L.A. many, many, many years ago. You may have heard me tell this, but I was out in L.A. many, many years ago, was driving and saw this billboard, and it was all black, all black billboard, just two white lines of text, and it said, cloning is bad, cloning is bad. I always thought that was great. I remember that. So scientists believe that they can recreate or create humans now. It's my understanding that a couple of them went to God and said, hey, God, we can create humans just like you did. We're that good now. We've got that much technology. We can create humans just like you did, God. So God says, all right, go ahead. Get started. So the scientist reaches down to, you know, grab some dirt just like God did. And God goes, oh, no, no, hold on a second. Go get your own dirt. You guys are always so gracious to chuckle. Here's the third point this morning in terms of the rebellion. And this is probably the saddest. They rebelled against God by trying to make a name for themselves. This is verse 4 that we've hinted at already several times this morning. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is nothing more than just good old-fashioned pride, isn't it? Nothing more than good old-fashioned pride. 
Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before destruction and haughtiness goes before a fall. I want you to do something else real quick. Uh, turn to 1 John. First John chapter 2. This is a passage you've heard us reference before. First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes... And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I'm going to use those verses for just a second and try and draw a parallel to the tower. The tower, based on what John has written here, was good for function. In the eyes of mankind at Babel, it was good for function. It'll protect us. The tower was pleasing to the eye. Huge. What an accomplishment. A pinnacle, right? It's an amazing accomplishment, a marvel to see. The tower makes us like God. Look at what we can accomplish. Isn't that a lot of what John writes in those three points there? And does this sound familiar to you? It should. Remember what happened in the garden? The fruit was good for food, wasn't it? So it was functional. Eve looked at it and goes, Oh, I mean, it's food we need to eat. Looks perfect. It was pleasing to the eye. Whatever it looked like, it it looked good. Beautiful, pleasing to look at, attracting. And then the last point was that that fruit was good for knowledge, wasn't it? They were like God, knowing good and evil. Very similar parallel to the tower. If we can reach the heavens and we can protect ourselves, we can make a name for ourselves, we can be like God. If we could just partake of that fruit, we can be just like God, knowing good and evil, and have nothing withheld from us. Isn't that interesting? But you know what the gospel says about that? The gospel reminds us that our most important identity is who we are in Christ. Galatians 6.14. I've got a couple passages that I want you to listen to. But may it never be that I would boast, Paul writes, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, the mankind at Babel wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to become great, impressive, powerful. And Paul says, hey, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about Christ, not myself. 2 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, And I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to make a name for ourselves, build ourselves up, puff ourselves up, and have some great reputation in the world's eyes. Who we are is who Christ calls us to be and what God has said about us. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide. Colossians 3.3, 3, we'll hear this eventually. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so as 
mankind wanted to create this name for themselves and build themselves up and create comfort, they didn't need to. We're called to allow God to be our protection, to God, for God to establish our identity. And the gospel says that our identity in Christ Jesus is everything that we need and nothing more. Matt and John and I were at our men's ministry this Wednesday morning and it came up, uh, Jim Davis referenced the Tears for Fears song from the 80s. Everybody wants to rule the world. You guys remember that song? Isn't that how it is? I mean, isn't the underlying desire and pride when it manifests itself today in mankind is to make a name for ourselves and rule and be dominant? Look at the World Health Organization and the advancements it made under COVID. Look at the United Nations, which wants every citizen of the world to become a citizen under its umbrella. That's pride, and that's what pride does. And so the second half this morning... We're going to see in verses 5 through 9 that the confusion at Babel was an act of grace and mercy by God. Turn back to Genesis. The confusion at Babel was an act of grace and mercy by God. Verses 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. We'll stop there for a moment. You've heard us refer to these acts of mercy and these acts of grace already in this series of seeing the gospel in Genesis. Adam and Eve, we said, were kicked out of the garden as a means and a mechanism of grace and mercy by God himself. They had become sinful... And so God knew if they were admitted back into the garden, they could very well eat from the tree of life perpetually in sin. And so he places an angel at the entrance of the garden to guard it and to keep them out. And that becomes an act of grace and mercy so that they would eventually die a natural death and not live in perpetuity in sin. God marked Cain. After Cain slew his brother Abel, God puts a mark on him and says, I'm doing this as an act of grace and mercy to you, Cain, so that Abel's death will not be avenged with your own life immediately. That if anybody who sees you will know that you're being guarded and that your death will not be avenged. Now we know that that only kicked the can of murder down the street a little while longer because of sin and the hatred that sin creates in our hearts of mankind but it was an act of grace and mercy by God towards Cain. Noah in the ark was obvious mercy sparing his family and a remnant of humanity. Something God did after the flood was to limit the lifespan of mankind as an act of mercy because it slows the development of sin in humankind. You know when when our lifespans are limited It becomes an act of grace and mercy to slow down how sin spreads and permeates around the world. And so we see here that the the confusion that God creates at Babel is an act of mercy that prevents even greater sin. And what I mean by that is in God's scattering of the people across the earth and in his confusion of the languages, It slowed down the propagation of sin and it also spread out the knowledge 
of how to construct that way. See how that works? We have a neighbor, Pete McKenzie, who has this great quote. And he and I were talking one time uh, in our yard, and we were talking about a retaining wall that might be needed and you know, a few other things and stuff like that. And he was, he's a geologist by trade, and he was talking about how this retaining wall might be able to be constructed, and he was referencing methods that the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incans and many other civilizations have, have uh, proven to be tried and true over centuries and millennia. And he said, here's how you can do this. And then he said after that, he goes, all of the ancients keep stealing all of our great ideas. <laughs> but think about that. There is technology millennia old, centuries old, that we don't know how they did it until we begin to investigate and look into it and we go, oh my gosh, they were brilliant. But that knowledge gets lost over time. Michael shared an article with me about Roman concrete. Present day scientists have believed for a long time that these lime deposits in this concrete were mistakes and accidental. And what they're now learning, I mean, for a long time they've believed this, and, and now what we're learning is that those lime deposits and pockets were actually in there intentionally by the Romans, by design, that when they get moisture, they expand and they actually grow into the cracks and they prevent. And that's how the Pantheon and other amazing, amazing feats of architecture have existed for so long. And, and, and contractors and scientists today are scratching our heads and going, oh my gosh, those guys were brilliant. It's better than the stuff we have today with all the technology at our disposal. Think about that. So God scatters the knowledge of how to build a tower to the heavens and to try and reach God and it slows the propagation, the spreading of sin just a little bit. It becomes a, an act of grace and mercy. We're talking about going back to the moon next year. NASA is having to relearn how to go back to the moon right now because all of the participants who got us there in the first place are no longer around. The technology they used, the information, the calculations, all that stuff is who knows where. And present day, we have these devices which are more than powerful than, than what they used that day back to go to the moon. And they still can't figure a lot of it out, having to relearn it. Yeah, the knowledge. And so, as a comparison, like the scattering at Babel, the gospel slows the proliferation of sin in the world today. It also slows and reduces sin personally in our own lives. You know, we should be sinning less than when we first came to Christ. Amen? We should be. There should be knowledge of some sin in our lives that should be gone. I'm not talking about a remembrance. But a drive to continue sinning in that way should be leaving as a result of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote to Corinth and said, I really ought to be coming to you guys with much more mature principles and truths, but you're immature. You haven't grown as though you should, and now I have to keep feeding you milk until you get it. The second thing we see in the Gospel is that unlike the scattering at Babel, the gospel actually unites. This is a comparison by contrast, if you will. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we're able to draw a truth out that happens by way of contrast. We've talked about that when we've looked at Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. We've talked about synonymous parallelism where we have two lines that might say something very similar just worded a little bit differently. And we might have contrasting parallelism where we have one line that says a truth and then we have one other line right after that is contrasting but essentially highlights and communicates the same 
biblical or godly truth. At Babel, God confused the languages which prevented unity and slowly reduced some sin. However, remember what happened in Acts 2 at Pentecost? God took all those languages, brought them together, and provided understanding which promoted unity. So God provides chaos and confusion at Babel as a means of slowing down, as a means of act, uh, act of grace and mercy, but he reverses that at Pentecost and provides understanding which promotes unity in Christ Jesus. Jews who had been living elsewhere came back and said, how is it that we are understanding everything they're saying? So God uses the gospel to create unity, cohesion, and bring everything under one headship of Christ. One headship at Babel was bad. One headship at Babel represented a complete and total rebellion at God, uh, towards God. But one headship in the gospel means one body, one mind, one spirit, united in Christ Jesus for the honor and the glory of God. Galatians 3, 27-28 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 2 Make my joy complete by being like-minded, not confused, not scattered like Babel, but be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now I'm going to ask you all, as we kind of pull this all together, turn to 1 Corinthians with me, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 10 and 12. Paul writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no, what? Divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Huh. So Paul really is advocating for unity in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Flip over to chapter 12. Look at verse... 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but what? The same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and what? The same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but what? The same God, who works in all things, in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common Good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts 
of healing by the one spirit and to another the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are what? One body, so also is Christ. And so we see there that in the gospel, God actually intends and promotes unity and a single headship in Christ Jesus. So as we kind of close this, we see that God has blessed humanity with wisdom knowledge and resources, but we are to use these blessings and provisions to glorify Him. We are not to use these to glorify ourselves and build ourselves up. When the advancement becomes more important than God Himself, we fall into sin. When the advancements seek to circumvent God and remove our reliance upon Him, it becomes sin. When advancements convince us that we can be like God and equal with God, it is sin. And the second thing, the gospel calls us to unity in the body of Christ. God has given us the tools to overcome languages and cultural barriers. Isn't that true? He's given us the tools to overcome the differences that were created at Babel when the nations were scattered. I might step on some toes for a second, but I'm going to say that I believe all too often in the contemporary church, in the present body of Christ, that humanity sometimes desires to hold on to those differences too much. It might be cultural. It might be linguistic. It might be style. It, it could be any number of things. But we're not always willing to set aside the differences in the interest of unity, in the interest of being baptized into one body, but we kind of cling to those. Isn't that ironic? That the very thing that God used to separate and scatter at Babel is now the thing that we try to cling to way more often than we should. And it's the one thing that cling, uh, prevents us from being unified to every believer in Christ Jesus. It's just clinging to those differences. And so hopefully we've been able to see how the gospel kind of like Babel, calls us to go to multiply disciples in the name of Jesus to fill the earth and to return to one headship, which is God himself. Amen.